What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. This week's episode is brought to you by the fine folks over at Young Health. Did you know that research suggests up to 80% of your immune system relies on a healthy gut? The people at Young Health do, which is why they've developed ProbeImmune a liquid probiotic that promotes intestinal health and contains a unique blend of bacteria not found in 99% of other probiotics. Probimune is easy to use, easy to travel with, and does not require refrigeration. Right now, our listeners get 50% off their first order of Probimune. That's a $34.95 bottle of Probimune for just $17.48 plus shipping and handling. Just go to www.probimmune.com. That's www.probimmune.com and use promo code SMART at checkout to get 50% off today. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, as always, and as always, an awesome episode for you today. One that, you know, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you are sure to love. We are talking with Dr. Susan David. Now, let me give you a little bit of an idea about who Dr. Susan David is. Susan is a psychologist on faculty at Harvard Medical School, co-founder and co-director of the Institute of Coaching at McLean Hospital, and CEO of Evidence-Based Psychology. An in-demand speaker and consultant, she's worked with senior leaderships for hundreds of organizations ranging from the United Nations, Ernst & Young, and the World Economic Forum, but it gets better. She has a PhD in psychology and a postdoctorate in emotions research from Yale. She has spent a good majority of her time studying emotions, which I find fascinating because they play such a role in who we are but who really knows what they are? We'll be talking about a number of things in this episode, such as why do we stay stuck in negative thinking? What are those thought patterns? What do we actually do to alleviate and live with and deal with stress and anxiety? How do we identify our values and use those to help us make decisions that are more core to our lives? The list goes on. And all of this and much more is covered in her brand new book, which came out just a few days ago, titled Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life. I really enjoyed this conversation with Susan, and I'm sure 
you will too. Hopefully, you'll take away some nuggets and let us know. Reach out to us on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. Tell the world this is something that you enjoy. And also, don't forget, sign up for our newsletter, smartpeoplepodcast.com, bottom right-hand corner, to get all of the inside scoop, updates, never-before-heard audio, and much more. smartpeoplepodcast.com, bottom right-hand corner. That's it. Quick and dirty to the point. Let's get on with this interview with Dr. Susan David as we discuss her book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive and Work in Life. As always, I hope you enjoy the episode. We have with us on the show this morning or afternoon, whenever you're listening, we have Dr. Susan David. And Susan, I just first want to say thank you so much for being on. I am like, I am chomping at the bit to get into these questions. So thanks again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So let's first, you know, we're going to get into your background, but one of the things we kind of briefly touched on it before we hit the record button was you studied emotions at Yale. I don't know what that means. I didn't know. Is it a, is it a a graduate degree? I mean, I know as your postdoc, I think I don't really know what that means. So tell us, what is that? How did you come about studying this crazy thing, which we call emotions? It's a fairly wild job title. So yeah, from a very young age, I was interested in emotions. I grew up in apartheid South Africa and there was an incredible amount of fear and terror and chaos that was going around in my general context. And so from a very young age, I became interested in emotions and in particular psychology how people deal with their emotions, how people deal with what life brings to them, and decided ultimately to pursue that as a career. So I did my uh, bachelor's and a master's degree in South Africa and then moved over to Australia where I did a PhD in psychology and then to Yale where I did a postdoc in the study of emotional skills. Um, And essentially, my work and my interest focuses on one central question, and that is, what does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions, and our self-stories, the narratives that we have about ourselves, that ultimately help us to thrive? Because what I've realized is that it doesn't matter how smart someone is or what someone's intention is in the way they parent or lead or love or even are with themselves. Um, While that stuff is important, fundamentally what makes a difference is are they able to manage their self-doubts, their concerns, their worries, their anxieties, their stresses that are part of our everyday life and being. So yeah, an emotions researcher and very much also applied and how do we bring this to practice in people's lives and and that's just such a wonderful explanation i can't help now but to jump into it something again i briefly mentioned to you but i think for the listeners it'll give an idea of where we're going with this one of the things i am fascinated by this subject and many will know and i also want to get into all of the stuff that's out there makes it almost impossible to make any headway is what i've found and, and I have this idea, and you can always tell me if I'm wrong, but that the, the sole, um, what is it, like paradox of being human is we have this amazing thing called the brain and we have this terrible thing called the brain. And what I cannot wrap my brain around, <laughs> that's what, wrap, wrap my <laughs> thoughts you know, around, is why it can be so bad. Like, why have we evolved these these thoughtful, intelligent, conscious creatures to have such bad habits, such as focusing on the negative, constant anxiety, stress. I'm not saying this is everyone, but for those out there that agree, and I think there's a lot of people, why can't we just be the the gazelle that gets chased, has a stress response, manages to survive, and then goes back to living? It, it's, it, it drives me nuts. So what is it? <laughs> 
So one of the things that I explore in my new book, Emotional Agility, is exactly this question, which is that human beings, we tend, for example, if we have a thought, we don't have a thought that is like, oh my goodness, Dr. Spock like, I need to phone my mother because I haven't spoken to her in two weeks. No, our thoughts come fully accessorized. We have a thought, I haven't phoned my mother in two weeks, and we have an emotion. We can visualize that person. We might have a memory of the individual, and we can simultaneously pick up our phones and phone the individual. So what we have is we have this amazing cognitive emotional system that effectively allows us to think, feel, act, have memories, emotions, all of these things fully accessorized simultaneously. And this is a normal, beautiful thing. It is fundamentally, as you referred to earlier, what helps us as a species to survive. You can imagine being on some savanna in Africa. You would not live 24 hours if you said to yourself, gee, I think that the person running towards me with a spear is about to attack me. Let me take out my iPhone and make a appointment for me to run away. No, we look at something, we feel it, we react, we respond simultaneously. So we have evolved fundamentally in this way because it is at its core what helps us to survive. One of the things that I talk about is how what happens in our, <clears throat> excuse me, is what happens in our modern day world is sometimes this leads us to do what I call get hooked, where we might be in a meeting and we say something like, that person's undermining me, therefore I'm just going to shut down, or I really want to apply for that job, but I'm just not cut out for it. So I'm just not going to because there's no ways that I'm going to get it. So what we tend to do is in our modern day life, we absolutely by evolutionary design, but sometimes in ways that don't serve us, we have what we call a fusion between our stimulus, the experience that we have, the sitting in the meeting, the discussion with the spouse the something that your child says that triggers you, and a response. And in emotional agility, I describe this as being hooked, the way we conflate our thoughts, emotions, and our actions, often in ways that lead us in the direction that is completely at odds with how we want to live our lives, the relationships that we want to have, how we want to parent. So it's fascinating, but really, I mean, by evolutionary design, this is where we're at. And one of the things that I describe in emotional agility is it can often lead us to when we have these kinds of experiences that are almost by evolutionary design, we can start thinking, I shouldn't feel bad. I shouldn't feel negative. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. But the fact is that our brains were designed to criticize, judge, evaluate and that's just our brains doing their jobs mm. you know what frustrates me is we have this ability to think critically about our own thoughts to evaluate what's going on and what what i'm unable to accept is and and i know that i kind of have to so i guess i'm asking for your help on this is why can we have these negative feelings these stress feelings get hooked and then it's it happens because of our evolution, yet we can use that same tool, the brain, the mind, to critically analyze what we're thinking and be mad at ourselves for it. It's like it's like we were bred to to be judgmental of ourselves. I just I don't know it. And it's frustrating what it can lead to. You know what I mean? So I absolutely hear what you're saying, but I want to turn that a little bit. You know, what you're describing is one of the most critical skills that we can use in our ability to become more emotionally agile. So, you know, what you describe here is what we call in psychological terms, meta-emotional or meta-cognitive skill. 
And that is the ability to both feel a feeling and to simultaneously rise above that feeling. So, for example, you've likely, or I know I've had, an experience where I'm really angry with a customer service agent, for example, or with a company because they've lost my phone bill and I've spent months and months and months trying to get this thing sorted out. And you finally get hold of a living, speaking person and you then let rip down the telephone about how angry you are and upset you are and so on. And as you are having that rage, as you are foaming and frothing, there's this little voice that goes off in your head, which says, Susan, you being silly. If you keep on being like this to this person, she is going to conveniently lose your, she's just not going to solve your problem. So we've all had that experience where we can simultaneously feel something and even be really fairly angry or upset about it, but almost be able to helicopter or rise above that emotion and to say, I'm feeling this thing, I'm not ignoring it, but I'm also able to see it for what it is. So what you describe is using that meta skill against yourself. So to judge yourself, to criticize yourself, to analyze yourself. If you take that idea and what you do is you match self-compassion, and I'll come to this a little bit later. So self-compassion towards the idea that you having these thoughts, emotions, stories, because you are human and that's what you are meant to be doing. That's your brain doing the job that it was designed to do and that it's been doing for millions of years and that nothing is going to stop it. So you take that idea of humanity and self-compassion and the idea that you really are doing the best you can with what you've got with where you are right now. And you then add to that the ability to rise above your thoughts and emotions and recognize that your thoughts and emotions are thoughts and emotions. They are data. They're not directions. They are not a, a path by which you have to follow. They are thoughts and emotions. So a critical skill that is, I think, fundamental to our ability to empathize and to our capacity to actually get ahead in this world is this ability to both feel an emotion or think a thought, but to recognize that it is just an emotion or a thought. It's important, it's valuable, but it's not. And that you as an individual are more than just your emotions and your thoughts. You've got choices, you've got values, you've got intention, you've got other ways that you can be with yourself in the world. So coming back to your original question, yes, in many ways, this ability to meta view or in emotional agility, what I call step out, can be to our disadvantage. But the development of the skill is actually critical to our ability to get, ahead, to get ahead. And just to add to that, if we think about, for example, something like the experience of depression, when you experience depression, very often what you are feeling is, I am feeling this feeling of sadness. The sadness is all that there is this sadness is not going to go away. When you have a meta skill, you recognize that the sadness is one part of you. The sadness is transient because all emotions are transient and that the sadness doesn't need to direct your actions. So a fundamental critical skill and one that we should be teaching our children, this ability to both feel an emotion, this ability to both feel an emotion and to rise above it. I guess I'd be remiss. I have so many questions going on, but I think the worst thing I could do is not go into this. So, so how do we do that? Huh? I mean, and, and I'm sure it has something to do with the catchphrase mindfulness. And trust me, I have my Headspace app and I do deep breathing and I do this stuff and I've been doing it for a while and I'm not that good at it yet. So I'm hoping you have some keys because it's something that definitely 
has a has a grip on me and I think a lot of people um you know I've done coaching I, I I hear about this stuff I know you know it is we put so much emphasis on the negative aspect that is part of our survival that is part of our evolution um and I never looked at it as we can take the same amount of attention and put it on the alternate views or you know the positive or just just that meta view how do we do that so one of the ways and the first step that I describe in emotional agility is what I call the ability to show up. When we think about emotional agility, it's often helpful to think about its opposite, rigidity. Rigidity is when we have thoughts, emotions, stories that basically dominate our action. And what that does is it takes us away from the ability to be present and connected and effective in the here and now and in the situation that we are actually facing, whether that's a discussion at work or a situation with our children or at home in a relationship. So one of the best ways that I think of emotional agility is that it is fundamentally described by Viktor Frankl, who when he came out of the Nazi death camps, described so eloquently this idea that between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space comes the ability to choose, the power to choose. And it is in that choice that lies our growth and our freedom. Now, that fundamentally is when I'm talking about emotional agility, when you are hooked, you have a conflation between your stimulus and response. I feel something and I'm going to act on it. When we develop the skills around emotional agility, we are able to feel our thoughts and emotions, recognize them for what they are, take the value that we can from them, leave what's not valuable, and then make a choice that is consistent with our lives. But the first part of this is completely at odds with what society currently tells us. So the first part of emotional agility, as I describe in the book, is this ability to show up. And what I am really meaning by showing up is, yes, the world tells us to be happy, think positive, focus on the positive, and to basically put on a happy face, almost a fake it till you make it. What I explore in emotional agility is how in such interesting and fascinating ways, when we adopt that kind of stance towards our emotion, push it aside, just get on with it, be happy, over time that actually leads to greater levels, not of happiness, but of unhappiness. To Describe another example of someone, and I think the Nazi concentration camps are such a period in our human history where people have been faced with such trauma and difficulty and there's such insights that can come out of that experience for people. Was Primo Levi described this example, this heartbreaking time where he was released from the Nazi death camps and he comes back on the train to his hometown with his fellow passengers and they are so relieved to be finally entering their town and seeing the people that they haven't seen and as they get off the train the townspeople come to them and say what has happened to you what happened to you? And Levi described as the words start tumbling out of his mouth about his experience, the townspeople turn and walk away because they are unable to metabolize, unable to come face to face with what is being described. And Levi describes this experience as being even more painful than some of the experiences that he had in the death camp itself. That as human beings, the need to be seen is so fundamental to our health and well-being that when we don't have that, 
it's difficult to move forward in any way. Now, in emotional agility, what I do is I take this idea and I explore ways that we can apply it to ourselves. So often in our lives, we feel like we just need to get on with things. So someone with an illness might say that everyone says, be positive, be positive, be happy. And what we fundamentally firstly need to do to become emotionally agile is to show up to our emotions, to stop struggling with whether a thought or emotion is the wrong emotion, right emotion, whether you should have it or shouldn't have it, and to basically move away from an internal struggle that we have with ourselves. Because it is only when we show up to ourselves It is only when we go face to face with where we are at, whether that is feeling uncertain in a job or dissatisfied in a relationship or even just wanting to achieve a big goal. It's only when we show up to the reality of the now that we are able to start making the change. So in sum, one first aspect of reality is not about just being positive. But it's actually about stopping any struggle within yourself as to whether you should or shouldn't feel anything by dropping the rope, by being with yourself in a way that is compassionate and gentle and recognizing that a fundamental human truth is that the first step to any change in our lives is paradoxically acceptance. Let's take a moment to thank Young Health for sponsoring this week's episode. Did you know that research suggests up to 80% of your immune system relies on a healthy gut? The people at Young Health do, which is why they've developed Probimmune, a liquid probiotic that promotes intestinal health and contains a unique blend of bacteria not found in 99% of other probiotics. Probimmune's industry-leading fermentation process ensures the largest number of good bacteria are delivered alive in the gut. After all, it's not about how many billions of bacteria are in a probiotic, it's about how many survive the digestive process. Probimmune is easy to use, easy to travel with, doesn't require refrigeration, and it's great for the whole family. Right now, our listeners can get an exclusive offer of 50% off your first order of Probimmune. A 30-day supply that's normally $34.95 for just $17.48 plus shipping and handling. All you have to do is go to www.probimmune.com. That's www.probimmune.com and use the promo code SMART at checkout to receive 50% off your first order of Probimmune. Remember, that's www. P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E.com and use promo code SMART to get 50% off today. Thank you again to Young Health and back to this week's episode. Okay, so imagine you wake up in the morning and you just feel, you just, you just feel bad, whatever it is, right? You feel depressed, you feel anxious, you feel stressed, you're just not excited to take on the day. And and that's happened to me. I'm sure that's happened to many people. And I can even feel the two thoughts going through my head. One is this mindset, this emotion, this current state is not going to serve me. It's not going to move me towards my goals and aspirations. It's not going to help me enjoy the day. And so I don't want this. And and, and what I struggle with is I don't think that is an unrealistic uh, emotion to say, I don't want this. And so to also fight it. And so I'm wondering how do we handle that? And in the same token, I'm also having this response of, I bet other people don't feel this way, or, you know, the really successful people were able to push this aside and, and, and conquer it anyways. And in many cases, I'm sure they have. So what do you do in that instance, in these instances, even knowing, you know, I need to show up to this, but I don't want this emotion, this thought, this feeling in my life anymore. So the first thing that I would say is that these emotions are part of life. 
and we actually don't really get to choose whether they come or go. <laughs> Emotions are fundamentally transient. And if I said to you or any of your listeners, think of your cell phone, um, generate an emotion about the thing you least like about yourself and the thing you best like about yourself. What we soon realize is that we can basically generate emotions and thoughts on command. The research shows that we have something like 16,000 spoken thoughts every single day and many, many, many more thousands of these emotions and thoughts course through our mind on a day-to-day basis. So one of the things that I think very often in the context of cultural messages is this idea that we get to fix everything. You know, we, we don't like our cell phone, we buy a new one, we don't like our car, we get a new one, we don't like our relationship, we go on match.com for a new relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes what we do is we try to apply that same mindset to our emotions. I don't like this. Let me push it aside. Let me get rid of it. Now, what's really interesting is, again, a paradox that we know of in psychology, which is an idea called amplification. And the idea behind amplification is that anytime you try not to think or feel something, that very thing that you're trying not to think or feel comes back. So if you try because you are on, a, are on a diet to not think of chocolate cake, you will think of chocolate cake. You will dream of chocolate cake. When we ask people not to have particular thoughts, even if they're completely arbitrary thoughts, those people will often have that 30 to 40 times a minute. The first aspect of not feeling bad and it's a laudable goal is that we sometimes the way we try not to feel bad is to push that emotion or that thought aside but actually what we know is it truly doesn't work the second part of dealing with that effectively because again it is you know we don't want to walk around in a in a funk all day but the second part that i would say to you is that often underneath our emotions, not all the time, because again, our emotions are not facts about our lives, but often underneath an emotion is a signpost. Our emotions often contain beacons or signposts to the things that are of value to us. Ignore those signposts and you often are ignoring something that is crucially important in your life. So Let me give a very simple example, and then I'll give something that's more in-depth. Imagine you are that day giving a big presentation, and you're saying to yourself, I'm so anxious. I am anxious, I'm anxious, I'm stressed. But I'm just not going to think about it. I'm going to get on with it, and I'm going to go ahead and do my presentation. We know that when you give that presentation, you are much more likely to have this amplification effect where your anxiety rebounds during the presentation and you suddenly are caught of God by your anxiety. And this pushing aside is really paradoxically not working. A different way of being with that anxiety is to be in bed and say to yourself, I'm noticing that I'm feeling anxious. Now that's very different from I am anxious where you're saying 100% of me is anxious You're noticing the feeling as a feeling. I'm noticing that I'm feeling anxious. Why is it that I'm feeling anxious? Is it that I need to prepare more for this presentation? Is it that I'm not totally confident in my message? Is it that there's some values misalignment in what I'm saying versus what I really believe in my message? And this kind of thoughtfulness not about every emotion you ever have, but about something that might be really important as you wake up that day can actually be fundamental to our effectiveness and our success. Hmm. So say we go through that exercise and we, we ask ourselves, because one of the areas that I'm thinking of is when, and I, actually I read it in, I think an article of yours, or maybe it was a talk or all the places I was reading, cause I love your stuff um, is, you know, 
Oh, it was the article you wrote kind of about Tony Robbins, who, by the way, I, I love that article and I also love Tony Robbins. So it was an interesting, it was an interesting uh, kind of back and forth there. But, you know, there are bad things that happen. There are, I mean, you might have to give this presentation and all of the things you just said are true, right? You don't really like it. Uh, you know, the you're not prepared. It's it, that lack of preparation is going to have a big impact on your career. I mean, these are realities. And so you say, I'm feeling anxious. Here are the reasons. You, you're still at that point probably going to feel anxious, nervous, depressed, emotions that are no fun for anyone. So I'm just wondering, you know, I have my own thoughts, but I'd rather hear from you. What What's the next step past that in any circumstance where these things are real? Sure. So a very first important aspect of, um, you know, this example, say waking up in the morning and feeling something, and we can apply this to any context of our lives. You mentioned the Anthony Robbins article, and really what I just described in that article is this idea there is much, much, much to be admired in Tony Robbins. Um, But I was really referring in that article to two particular aspects of some of his recent writing. And one of them was this idea that we should really constantly pursue happiness, that we should not allow any space in our lives for unhappiness, and that every moment of our days should effectively be moments in which we generate or create or cultivate joy and creativity and connection. Now, again, this is a a laudable goal, But what's really fascinating is that research clearly shows that people who have an expectation of being happy all the time or who set up a goal of being happy over time actually become less happy. There are these fascinating experiments that are done looking at people's valuing of happiness as an end goal. And that almost give life to this wonderful phrase that expectations are disappointments waiting to happen. When you have an expectation that Christmas or Thanksgiving is going to be the happiest day of all of your family coming together, very often we are left disappointed because the reality is that people are people and there's complexities that arise and so on. So it's not that I'm anti-happiness. I actually wrote a 80-chapter edited book called The Oxford Handbook of Happiness, which is how do we as human beings cultivate real happiness in our lives? So really what I'm suggesting here is not that happiness is bad. It's lovely. I'm a happy person and I enjoy being happy. But that setting happiness as an expectation, as a goal, does not work for people. Happiness tends to come about when you are pursuing something that is intrinsically connected with what you value. It's not something that happens as an end point, but as a byproduct. So if we take the example that you were talking about earlier on, you're doing this presentation, you have to do the presentation, you're feeling stressed about doing the presentation, one of the things that I explore in emotional agility is the incredible power of values. So again, between stimulus and response, there is a space, and in that space lies our power to choose. So you're thinking about this thing that you have to do. And when we have to do something, our brains rebel. We don't want to do it. We resent doing it. We struggle with the idea of doing it. And we all know, again, you have to be on a diet. All we want is to eat the thing we can't eat. There's an incredible power in what I call want-to goals. So over here, what we've got is we've got a have-to goal that is a goal that is a goal created out of a sense of obligation and often out of a sense of shame. I have to lose weight. I have to go to this meeting. I have to be on dad duty today. Want to goals, on the other hand, are goals that are connected with what is intrinsically important to us. So I want to lose weight 
because I want to see my children grow up is the same goal around losing weight, but it's connected with something that is truthfully your why, your fundamental thing in your heartbeat of what is important to you. And being with my child today because I chose to parent and this is important to me. I am in this meeting because I really care about the customer and generating something that is helpful for the customer is something that can be achieved in this meeting. So often what we do as human beings is we trap ourselves into subtleties of language that are around have two goals. And one of the things that I explore in emotional agility is that if you are able to surface a want to goal, and this is not forced positive thinking, it's not trying to spin doctor yourself into wanting to do something that you truly don't want to do. But the idea of being able to surface something that is truly values aligned is so freeing and so beautiful to us in our lives. And what's really fascinating, and I can talk about this more if you like a little later, is that generating want to goals versus have to goals has been found to actually alter the physics of, for example, our willpower, our ability to withstand social contagion, uh, our ability to be well and happy and thriving in our lives. It's critical. All right. How about a huge thank you to Igloo Software for sponsoring this week's episode. Work is no longer a location. Teams can be together half a world away. Igloo is a modern intranet designed to keep everyone on the same page. Share files, have real conversations in real time, and do it all while being able to use the apps you currently use like Box, Google Drive, and Skype. Igloo brings everything together and creates a single destination that lets you focus on your work. And let's be honest, that's the most important piece. Put simply, Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Try it today at www.igloosoftware.com smart. That's www.igloosoftware.com smart. Thank you again to Igloo Software, and now back to the show. You know, I think about that so much because I had values written down on my paper in capital letters with a circle around them. Because one of the things I've found most difficult in my own life in coaching is nailing down, writing down, getting your values, and then trusting those values even when they go against any... Um, societal norms, stories you've told yourself, things you thought you valued, etc. But what I've learned and what what I know but what I want to hear from you is, you know, values are so critical in decision making. How do you recommend for people listening who may have known this or not known this but haven't done it, etc., how do we nail those down? How do we trust in them? Essentially, why do values play such a role in our ability to make the right decisions, make those want to goals and hopefully lead a more fulfilling life? So that's a wonderful question. It's really interesting values. And I think part of this is because almost every organization has its wall of values. Values often have this connotation of being something that are warm, fluffy, maybe a little bit cheesy when people use the term and really actually almost abstract ideas. One of the things that I explore in emotional agility is how values are not these things that you have in your mind, but they are qualities of action. So these are critical. What's really fascinating is the very, very robust but recent body of research showing that as human beings, we are subject in ways that we often do not even realize to what we call social contagion. So fascinating work that, for example, shows that if you are on an airplane and your seat partner, who you do not even know, buys a snack, a chocolate or a bag of crisps, that you are 30% more likely to make a purchase. That if someone 
in your social circle, you do not even need to know that person. They can be two or three degrees of separation. Puts on weight. You are more likely, statistically, to put on weight. If a person within your social circle that you do not even know gets divorced, you are more likely, and these are large-scale epidemiological studies. We've all experienced this in very subtle ways, how you get into an elevator, for example, someone takes out their mobile phone, you take out your mobile phone. It's this idea of in very unconscious, um, mindless ways, picking up the actions and attitudes of people around us. And this can be really crucial when it comes to things like failures and setbacks and difficulties in our lives. If you, for example, are a first-generation college-goer in your family and you already are going into college with a sense of, do I belong here? Is this the place for me? And then you have a big exam and you do badly on it. What we know is that your chances of dropping out of college become elevated. However, if you have done the very simple And it can literally be a 10-minute exercise of thinking about and writing down what your values are. The research shows that you are protected and it's often years of protection in buffered effects around these transitions. That these kids will stay in college longer. That people will be able to move through setbacks more effectively. They will be able to, what I call an emotional agility, walk their why in a way that is robust and sound. All of this to say that values are not this thing that we somehow have in the back of our mind, but really bringing them to the front is critical and it frees us in so many ways when we make decisions because now we're not making decisions based on what everyone else and often everyone else's conflicting views are telling us but rather what is important to us. So so how do we get to the point of knowing what is important to us? In emotional agility, I explore various ways of doing this where you are moving from the place of just having this abstract idea to actually thinking about if I was today going to be experiencing my last day. What would be the kinds of things that would have made me feel the day was worthwhile? When you get into bed at night, what was it that I did today, again, that was worthwhile? Which is different from that felt good, because we can often do things that feel good, but that aren't necessarily worthwhile. You know, we can go to a party and we can have a lot of fun, but it doesn't necessarily count in our hearts and it's going to be different for different people as to something that feels worthwhile. And there are different ways that we can start exploring this idea of what is important to me. It doesn't need to be three things that I, you know, have and live by forever because again, we change and our values may change over time. But really this idea of what is the litmus for you of what effectiveness looks like, what success looks like. I was just thinking about that when you said doesn't feel good and, and you know, what was worthwhile can be a, just that little tweak can, can cause significant differences in how you evaluate what's important and your values. And so, Correct. you know, I really love that differentiation. And again, you know, as you mentioned, you talk about it in your book, Emotional Agility, um, there's a number of exercises you can find. It's one of those things that, that I've just really kind of recently latched back onto and tried to figure it out. There's something else that I want to cover because, again, getting back to this idea of uh, the science of psychology in our brains and goal setting and mindset and all that is, is, is really booming and things get confusing. One of the things I've heard a lot about are stories that we tell ourselves um, there's, we interviewed a long time ago, a guy who talks about how, you know, people need to go experience or re-experience things in from their childhood and, and all the things. 
that make us who we are, these filters. And they might be they might be blocking us from who we can become. How do we become aware of those stories, perhaps those blind spots? Because unfortunately, we can't physically go back and change them, whatever happened, whatever thought, however we were raised, whatever it might be. What can we do in the now to modify it, to live a life more true to who we want to be and not caught up in who we've told ourselves we always are or have been? That's so right. We all have stories. Some of the stories were written on our mental chalkboards in grade three about who we are, what we are destined to do, whether we are good enough, and so on. And again, these stories are not something to be struggled with. They are normal. Every single person has them, and they are key to helping us live our lives effectively. We all construct them because having a sense of coherence, who we are and our place in the world, helps us to survive. It helps us to block out what might be unimportant and move forward in other ways. But absolutely, sometimes what can happen is our stories can start to own us rather than us. So we might say something like, I'm just not cut out for, or I've got a story that I was never destined to be healthy because everyone in my family is unhealthy or whatever the story is. So there are key ways that we should uh, connect with our stories, and that is firstly be compassionate towards them, knowing that our stories are there for a reason, that often we develop these stories in order to help us to cope with a particular period of our lives or to make sense of what was going on around us. But we can start to recognize when our stories are not serving us when firstly our stories are patterned. So for example, it's not that you didn't apply for just this one job, but that three or four times you've had an opportunity that you have somehow turned down because you didn't feel that you were good enough for it. So it's going to be different for different people. But when you move into a space where there are patterns of moving away from things, that is a sign that you've got a story that's owning you rather than you owning the story. Another thing to recognize with stories is that often our stories contain what I call dead people's goals. So let me explain what I mean here. A dead person's goal is when you say something like, I don't want to fail. I don't want to be hurt again. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to. So the reason I call these dead people's goals is because dead people are the only people who never get hurt, who never fail, who never get sad, who never get rejected. And you don't listen to be your role model. Hmm. So a strong sign that you've got a story that isn't serving you is when your story is somehow connected with a goal that is a dead person's goal. I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> it's, that's a powerful way of remembering it. And, and I like, and you know, I like talking about the stories just because it's one of those things. Again, I, I consider them possible blind spots unless we start uncovering them. And so it's just one of those things that to work through can be so beneficial. The one, one last thing I want to ask, and perhaps I should have asked this at the beginning while I have you on, you've studied emotions in depth. You've written a book now about them, but many books and articles surrounding them. What is an emotion? What does the science say? I mean, you went to one of the most prestigious you know, universities in the world. You've studied this ephemeral kind of crazy idea, which is an emotion. How would you define them? Where do they originate? And what do they mean at their, at their core, according to you? I mean, I don't even know if that's a question that we can answer, but according to you. <laughs> so I will start by saying that every single scientist of emotions will have a different definition. Mm -hmm. But an emotion is basically a complex 
physiological response that has both uh, sensations, so you may have the butterfly sensation in your stomach, it has cognitions that come with it, and it often has behavior that is not necessarily an action, but behaviors that are attached to it. So it's this very, very, very complex um, confluence of experience that happens in yourself. Some people describe emotions as being um, what they call basic emotions, where there are, you know, anger, fear is a basic. We see these emotions universally across cultures and very similar causes. So across cultures, we know that people tend to get angry about the same thing. My goal is being blocked or sad about a sense of disappointment or loss. But fundamentally, what an emotion is, is this complex physiological experience that is either a reaction to or an anticipation to the world around us. Hmm. How was that? Oh, was Not gr- very was, short. No, no. But- <laughs> oh, I didn't, need, I didn't need it to be short. I, I, I just really... They're so confusing. What I liked, actually, what what really jumps out to me is how all-inclusive an emotion can be. It's not j- – what I was really mulling over was, you know, the feeling attaches to it oftentimes a thought. And then I've heard this recently, this kind of flow of, you know, I think it's – which feel, is it feelings leads to thoughts, which leads to behaviors, which leads to outcomes, something like that. And – so all of that can come in the form of an emotion, which kind right. of... And, and I, I would actually kind of argue against that idea that a lot of times people say it's your thoughts that create your emotions mm-hmm. um, that then create your behaviors. And actually what the research really points to is the idea that this is kind of moot, that a lot of these things just co-occur simultaneously, that it's almost impossible to say, you know, we've got a thought that's created an emotion. So just as an example, we can feel an emotion when we feel happy. It actually can lead to a particular type of thinking, big sky, big picture, um, inductive type thinking. When we feel an emotion that's more neutral to negative, it can lead to a different type of thinking, which is more analytical, critical, and so on. Um, And it's really difficult well, one thing always precedes the other. They actually kind of co-occur in very complex and beautiful ways. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I really am. I actually, because I had always heard of the thoughts. You're right. The thoughts lead to emotions one, um, which lead to behaviors. And then I recently heard something. I was listening to a podcast on, I think it was on anxiety. And it was talking about how try to notice which comes first. And, and, And that was the first time I'd ever thought of that, you know notice do you just feel a certain way maybe you literally just feel a certain way maybe it's uh, low blood sugar i don't know maybe it's you know low sodium or your fatigue and then that creates thoughts or a story gets all wrapped up in it which goes on to the way you behave so talking about how we don't quite know at the moment i really really appreciate you bringing that up well dr susan david it has been an enlightening conversation. I thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a busy schedule because the book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life, just came out as of this recording. It came out two days ago. Is that right? That is correct. Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations on that. Thank you. It's been fun. It's been an amazing, amazing journey. I'm sure. And, you know, we will put a link to it, of course, at smartpeoplepodcast.com. I actually just just purchased it. I hadn't had a chance to, to read it yet. I've been flying everywhere, and it just came out. I just bought it this morning on Kindle and already started going through it. It's incredible. Uh, I'm mowing through your articles. So thank you for the work you do. And is there anywhere else before you go, you know, where can people who are really fascinated by this topic, love learning about emotions, want to strengthen their brain? Of course, the book, again, Emotional Agility. Um, do you write elsewhere or social media, everything like that? I do. I've got, I write frequently for the Harvard Business Review. So I've got a couple of articles out this week, but I've got a wide base of articles that people can find there. 
I frequently post to social media so people can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, but something that actually might be of use and interest to your audience is that I've also developed a free emotional agility. So if listeners go to www.susan, S-U-S-A-N, David, D-A-V-I-D, dot com forward slash learn, so susandavid.com forward slash learn, you'll see there there is a quiz and it's a five-minute free quiz. From that, people actually get a 10-page PDF report emailed to them that's customized to their specific responses. So if people are interested in the ideas and they want to explore them more in a more personalized way, that's a great way to start. You better believe that's where I'm going as soon as we hang up. <laughs> well, Susan, thank you so much. Thank you, and Lydia. we'll be thank in touch you. soon. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Hello and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Dr. Susan David. Dr. David's book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life, can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. Please remember, if you do decide to purchase anything through Amazon, whether it's author's books that you've heard on the show or you're just buying another computer, don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. It's free for you to use, comes at no cost to you, and it truly does help out the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review over there. Again, this comes at no cost to you, takes about two or three minutes out of your day, and we really, really, really do appreciate each and every person that leaves feedback. If you want to stay up to date on all things Smart People Podcast, please head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, sign up for the newsletter over there, Follow us on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. And if you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can always reach us via email at SmartPeoplePodcast at gmail.com. All right, that's it for me this week. Again, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please stay tuned. We've got another one coming out in a couple weeks. Don't forget to say hi on Twitter, and we will see you all next episode. Bye.